0: Hello, and welcome to the Seven Stage Podcast. My name is JY Ping, and on today's episode, I want to talk about main point, main conclusion questions from the logical reasoning section of the LSAT. Uh, these questions, in many ways, they are absolutely the foundational uh, kinds of questions that, that tests your one of the cornerstones of your ability to perform well on uh, logical reasoning, and that is to identify what the main point or the main conclusion of an argument is. Now, the reason why that skill, you know, the skill of identification is foundational is because in order to do all of the other stuff on logical reasoning, like to weaken an argument or strengthen an argument, and all of the uh, variations upon those themes, the first thing you have to do is you have to know what the argument is. And what that really means is to identify the premises and the conclusion. Right? The premises are just the statements that support the conclusion. And the conclusion is just the claim that is supported by those other statements, which we earlier called premises. So really, in a way, they define each other, right? These statements define each other. You're just identifying the relationship that exists between statements that you see in an argument. We'll take a look at the June 2007 prep test. That's the one that the LSAC releases for free online. And uh, in that prep test, there are three main point main conclusion questions and we're going to cover all of them now this is at once a good representation of main point main conclusion questions and at once not a good representation it's good in the sense that it's kind of random you know i'm not cherry picking questions that fit uh, the hypothesis the theory that i'm trying to teach you so in that sense this is good Uh, but in another sense it's not good because it's just too limited you know it's only three questions and the outside writers definitely have more tricks up their sleeves than what they reveal to us in these three questions. But, you know, nonetheless, we're going to see these three questions. We're going to see a lot of the tricks that they employ, a lot of the trap answer choices that uh, they construct. And we're going to analyze how they do that, why they're psychologically attractive, and what we can do to uh, avoid falling for those traps. Okay, so let's get started. The first question we're going to look at is from section two, question one. Uh, the question stem reads which one of the following most accurately expresses the main conclusion of the economist's argument so the key words in the question stem that you want to pick up on is just main conclusion as you get better and better with lsat you just learn to uh, recognize key words from the question stem so you can identify very quickly what kind of question you're doing so let's take a look at the economist's argument every business strives to increase its productivity for this increases profits for the owners and the likelihood that the business will survive. But not all efforts to increase productivity are beneficial to the business as a whole. Often, attempts to increase productivity decrease the number of employees, which clearly harms the dismissed employees as well as the sense of security of the retained employees. Okay, so that's the end. Now, I bet some of you probably already know what the main conclusion is. If that's the case, that's really great. That means you have very strong intuitions to begin with. I want to see if we can unpack those intuitions, though. You know, I want to see if, uh, even if we didn't have those intuitions, is there some systematic way that we can identify what the main conclusion is? Because what we're really aiming to do is to strengthen our intuitions. Make sure that they don't misfire. Make sure they're operating in a systematic and reliable way. Okay, so let's start with the first sentence, which says, Every business strives to increase productivity, for this increases profits for the owners and the likelihood that the business will survive. Even in this first sentence, there's so much to unpack. The Elsa writers love to write condensed sentences. A lot of information just squeezed into one little sentence. Okay, or maybe not so little. The sentence is actually rather long, but certainly the sentence is shorter than it would be if we unpacked all the information. Okay, really, I think we can unpack the sentence into three sentences. First sentence, Every business strives to increase its productivity. Period. Full stop. Second sentence, Instead of saying, This increases profits, you swap out the word this for what it's referring to, which is increase in productivity. Increases in productivity increases profits for the owners. Second sentence, full stop. And finally, increases in productivity increases the likelihood that the business will survive. What I just did there is something that you can do all across the LSAT. And it's part of the reason why the LSAT is difficult is because they take statements that, on their own, are rather simple statements. But the LSAT writers compress them together into a dense, grammatically more complex sentence. So, a big part of your ability to do well in this test is your ability to unpack that dense grammar, to get at the meaning of the statements. Now, I know what I just did with this first sentence might seem trivial or even pedantic because I doubt you guys had trouble understanding the statement in its original condensed form. I I feel like I didn't need to unpack it. But the point is that you can. Okay, the point is that you can. And this is an important point because not all sentences are going to be easy like this. Right? So you want to, again, this is what I mentioned earlier about your intuition doing the work for you. I'm sure your intuition just did the work for you there but you know what let's see if we can unpack that intuition what is it actually doing right so that when you get a harder question or a statement and your intuition is faltering a little bit well maybe you can reinforce it with conscious deliberate analysis okay so once again the first statement just claims that every business wants to increase productivity why because by doing that two things happen first is it Increases profits for owners. Second, is that increases likelihood that the business will survive. All right, so right there we already have an argument, where we got the conclusion first, and then the two supporting premises thereafter. And in the original sentence, there's this word for. Every business strives to increase its productivity. For this increases blah 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 and blah blah blah. All right, the word for as is stressed in the core curriculum section on argument analysis, but specifically main point, main conclusion. The word for is used as a conjunction to join together conclusions and premises. And generally, the stuff that follows the word for, those are premises. Words like since and because operate in the same way. Okay, so I think we're done, right? I mean, just within the first sentence, we have an argument, and we have the premises that increased productivity increases profits for owners, and increased prof- uh, prof- productivity increases the likelihood that businesses will survive therefore every business strives to increase productivity conclusion is very clear every business strives to increase productivity let's go into the answer choices and see if we can find that and let's see a b c oh look d d says pretty much that there is no business that does not make efforts to increase its productivity that's a very good paraphrasing of every business strives to increase productivity and here in answer choice d we are encountering another technique that the outside writers often use uh, to paraphrase claims, where the original claim was, Every cat likes to drink milk. Answer choice D said, There is no cat that does not like to drink milk. Even though these two claims sound different, they are expressing the same thing. Just like how if I say, You are taller than me, that's saying the same thing as, I am shorter than you. They sound different, using different words, but the meaning expressed is the same. That's everywhere on the test. Okay, so D is an excellent paraphrasing of the conclusion we identified. Except the problem is, that's not the conclusion of the argument, because there are way more sentences than just the first sentence. And those other sentences, in relation to the first sentence we just read, establishes the role that the first sentence is playing. Okay, so... We get this idea of what the first sentence is telling us, that here's what every business wants to do, increase productivity, and you get the sense of why. More money for owners and less chance of the business going out of business. Okay, now the economist says, but. This word, but, along with, however, generally, indicates in an LR stimulus a turn. A turn in the sense that the author is saying to you, okay, now that I've just told you this first claim, listen up. Here's what I really want to express. Meaning that the first claim that we just learned from The Economist is being relegated to the position of contextual information. Now that you know the stuff about what businesses want to do and why they want to do it, now you have the relevant background contextual knowledge for me to make my argument to you. And so The Economist says, but not all efforts to increase productivity are beneficial to the business as a whole. You see how that is a co- in contrast to what we just learned. We just learned every business wants to increase productivity and, you know, the reasons why. Okay, the economist says, yes, that's true. They really do want to, inc- they strive to increase productivity. However, not all of those efforts actually benefit the business as a whole. And here I'm thinking, well, wait, why? Right? Like, why? I, I, don't, I don't just want to take that claim on face, just like, believe it because you told me. I want to know why it is that some efforts to increase productivity don't benefit the business as a whole. And if you find yourself asking that, well, why question, then what you're really doing, what your intuition is doing for you, is your intuition is already trying to slap a conclusion label on that claim. Because it's really the conclusion claims that demand support, that demand a why. You know, why is it that all efforts to increase productivity don't guarantee benefit to the business as a whole. Well, if you keep reading, you find out why. Because it says, often, often attempts to increase productivity, decrease the number of employees, meaning some employees are fired, which clearly is bad for the fired employees. And you're thinking, well, wait, but we're talking about business as a whole and these employees are fired already. They're not part of the business. So I still don't see why that's bad for the business as a whole. But you keep reading and it says, look, it's not just bad for the employees that got fired. It's also bad For the employees that you've retained because they now don't feel secure in their jobs. Right? It's like I just saw my coworker get the axe. How is that gonna make me feel? Is that gonna make me feel safe? Definitely not, but I'm still part of the business. So you see, that claim earlier where we were asking, well, wait a second, why? It's been answered. Now I do know why not all efforts to increase productivity are beneficial to business as a whole. It's because some of those efforts involve firing people, and when you fire someone, it affects the people who didn't get fired, who are still part of your business, and their morale is lowered. You know, maybe they don't feel as secure, and maybe they start looking for other jobs. Maybe they try to preempt you. Maybe they start looking for or whatever. I'm making all these reasons up, but whatever reasons. So really, the main conclusion of the entire stimulus of the economist's whole argument is that middle sentence, the second sentence, the one that follows, but. So now, if we take a look at the answers again, The right answer choice, the one that paraphrases that claim best is answer choice B. Some measures taken by a business to increase productivity fail to be beneficial to the business as a whole. And again, you see B is doing the exact same thing that D did, which is to say it's paraphrasing the claim. And it also happens to do a great job. See, the original claim is that not all cats enjoy playing with dogs. That's the original claim. Answer choice B said, some cats do not enjoy playing with dogs. Again, they sound different, but they are expressing exactly the same concept. And here I think I just have to leave it at an appeal to your intuition. I hope that makes sense. Um, If it doesn't, there is an entire lesson on the relationship between some claims, all claims, not all claims, and how you transform one into the other and why they are, in fact, logically identical i'll just make one more comment about answer choice b and it's uh for you to realize that the LSI writers do in fact paraphrase that is to say use different words but to express largely the same thing as the original expression in the stimulus okay so if you just do this kind of mechanical like i'm gonna find each word verbatim in the answer choice that might work out for you some answer choices might do that but you can see here, it's, it's not all answer choices that do that. Okay, so now let's talk about A, C, and E, the other three answer choices which are all wrong and why they're wrong. A says, If an action taken to secure the survival of a business fails to enhance the welfare of the business's employees, that action cannot be good for the business as a whole. A is a conditional statement. A conditional statement takes the form, if X, then Y, where X is said to be the sufficient condition and Y the necessary. And what that means is that whenever X is true, Y must be true. Okay, so that's the conditional statement. Now again, I can't, unless I go off on like a 30-minute tangent, I can't really get into the details of conditionality here and sufficiency and necessity. But once again, of course, there's a lesson in the core curriculum about that. Uh, but here, this claim is just straight up false. Okay, according to the stimulus, to our argument that we read, A is a false claim because look at the sufficient condition. An action taken to secure the survival of a business fails to enhance the welfare of the business employees. This is really just a lot of details about the particular action, right? It's like, it's an action. Tell me more about the action. What was the motivation for the action? Was it to screw someone over? Was it to increase sales? Uh, Was it to generate good publicity for the business. There are all sorts of motivations you can talk about for this action. But here we're told a very specific one. This is an action taken to secure the survival of a business. Fine. Okay. So now I know the motivation of the action. We're trying to secure the survival of the business. And what was the result? Did it succeed? Did it do exactly what we expected it to do? Did it wildly exceed our expectations? Or did it fail? And here we're told that this action failed to enhance the welfare of the business's employees. Okay, does that mean it was bad for the employees? No, it doesn't. That's what the outside writers are hoping you would misinterpret the claim as. If I fail to enhance your welfare, does that mean I made you worse off? No, not necessarily. My actions could have been simply irrelevant to your welfare. It did not enhance your welfare. But it also did not make you worse off so here again we get to peek into the lsat writer's room so to speak you know we get to see one of the things that they like to do a lot which is uh, play with this potential to confuse colloquial or polar opposites with this different concept of a logical opposite okay so in in certain cases the two dis- the two uh, distinctions collapse into one that is to say there is no distinction like for example You know, in the context of a race, say the Olympic 100-meter sprint, if you didn't win, you lose. There's no, like, in-between option, right? So if I said something like, I failed to win, well, that means that I lost, right? So in that sense, the logical opposite of not win and the colloquial polar opposite of lose, they are one in the same situation. But this is not like that. Enhancing someone's welfare is not that polar opposite case right it's not like if you fail to enhance the welfare of someone you must have hurt their welfare you know like i said it could have just been not enhanced welfare which is to say irrelevant in other words there is that in between space between enhancing someone's welfare making them better off and hurting them making them worse off and that in between space is just you know you didn't do anything for them they're not better off nor are they worse off for your actions That's what this claim is actually making, right? Here we have an action that the business took to secure the survival of itself, and it did not enhance the welfare of business employees. So maybe it hurt the business employee's welfare, or maybe it didn't. Maybe it just was irrelevant for the employee's welfare. But A, in totality, remember we are just talking about the sufficient condition of A. In totality, A is saying if that's true then that action cannot be good for the business as a whole. Wait, why? That action certainly could be good for the business as a whole. I took action to secure the survival of the business, let's say by increasing sales. And in the process, I did not enhance the welfare of my employees. They're working just as hard and they're getting paid just as much. So they are equally well off before and after the action. But I did increase my sales, which you know does better secure the survival of my business. So that action was good for the business as a whole okay so one last thing about answer choice a um, it represents a class of wrong answer choices where it's not even true or at least it's not even clear that it's true it could be false given the information in the stimulus and if that's the case really there's no room for evaluating whether it's the main conclusion you see i mean implicit in it being a good paraphrasing and answer choice being a good paraphrasing of the main conclusion is that it at least has to be true right because all you're doing is you just repeating something that the argument has already said and of course you know there are lots of other stuff that's uh, going to be repetitive about answer choice a that you'll see in other answer choices uh, other places on the logical reasoning i mentioned the distinction between polar or colloquial opposites versus logical opposites and i mentioned sufficiency necessity uh, that's a huge topic In fact, it's so huge that it shows up again in answer choice C, uh, which says that only if the employees of a business are also its owners will the interests of the employees and owners coincide, enabling measures that will be beneficial to the business as a whole. Here, uh, the way that this conditional statement has been introduced is with the phrase only if, which unlike if, only if introduces necessary conditions. So C is claiming that the necessary condition is that employees of a business are also its owners. In other words, the people working in the business are also the owners of the business. There's no distinction between owners and workers. They are one and the same, right? And choice C is claiming that is necessary. Okay, that is a necessary condition for what? For the following: the interests of employees and owners coincide, enabling measures that will be beneficial to the business as a whole. So in other words, they're saying, If it's not true that owners are employees in other words if it is true that you just have a what we i suppose generally think of as your standard business where there are owners people who own the company and then there are employees who are not owners people that are hired by the company to work for the company for a salary c is claiming if that's true then the interests of employees and owners will not coincide which then will not enable measures that will benefit the business as a whole again i think Having understood what C is saying, you see that it just doesn't have to be true according to the stimulus. What about the stimulus says that the employees have to be the same as as the owners? I mean, the stimulus does say that some efforts to increase productivity don't benefit the business as a whole because they involve firing certain employees. Sure there definitely are things that a business can do that exploit the lack of incentive alignment between owners and employees. What's good for the owners, not necessarily great for the employees. But that doesn't mean everything's like that. You know, again, we can just go to the example that I raised for A, where uh, the business does something to increase its sales a little bit, which is neither good nor bad for the employees. They're working just as hard. They are getting paid just as much. Uh, let's say they don't even know about the sale, so their sense of security of their jobs just remains at whatever it was before so truly it does nothing for the employees but you know it does something for the business right it is actually better for the business and finally answer choice e is rather attractive but for a different reason so each of these wrong answer choices well maybe not each a and c are rather similar but uh, e certainly uniquely displays a different psychological trap And it's that of very closely paraphrasing, almost verbatim, in fact, something from the stimulus, but just the wrong part of the stimulus. In other words, not the conclusion. E says, decreasing the number of employees in a business undermines the sense of security of retained employees. And it's like, you read that and you're like, yeah, I agree with that. It's true. It definitely is true. Unlike A and C. There's no question about it. E is true because E pretty much just paraphrases uh, the last sentence when you decrease employees that harms the sense of security of the retained employees right which is pretty much what e says but the reason why it's wrong is because it's not the main point what is it though it's a premise it's the reason why we believe the main conclusion okay so to wrap it all up a and c are rather similar at a superficial level they're both conditional statements so in that sense they're similar but More deeply, they're similar in that it's not even clear that they are true. They could be false, given the information in the passage, in the stimulus. E and D, on the other hand, are similar in that they are true and good paraphrasings of some claim in the stimulus, but it just so happens that they're not paraphrasing the conclusion. E paraphrases a premise, and D paraphrases... The contextual argument's conclusion. These are all cookie cutters. You know what I mean is things that you're going to encounter again in future main point questions. Types of wrong answer choices that will be reincarnated. Okay, the stimulus itself is also cookie cutter. And it goes like this. You have a contextual argument with its own contextual premise, contextual conclusion, followed with a but now that you understand this argument that every business wants to increase productivity for these two reasons okay great you got that good now listen up but here's the thing i really want you to understand which is that some efforts to increase productivity aren't beneficial to the business as a whole hmm so i think that's the conclusion let's follow that hypothesis why tell me why some efforts fail to benefit the business as a whole because and here we go premises Sometimes you increase productivity by firing people, which hurts the people you fire, but also hurts the sense of morale of the people you don't fire, which is a part of your business. So you see, it doesn't benefit the business as a whole. Okay, great. So um, I know that was a probably way too much of an analysis for some of you. Um, it is question one, and uh, I'm looking at the analytics right now on 7th Sage, and it's rated uh, one star. So it's not a hard question. But I hope nonetheless that was helpful because, well, a minimum, I'm hoping you can see that even with a question that is rated one star, you see the inner workings of the LSAT writers. So much of what uh, took time to talk about, to explain in this question, revolved around how it's repetitive, how it's not just unique to this question, but rather it's a cookie cutter. You know, whether it's a cookie-cutter wrong answer choice, or if it's a cookie-cutter stimulus, or the concepts are cookie-cutter, like that of a logical opposite versus a colloquial or polar opposite. So when you're doing your own blind review of a PrEP test, this is the kind of thorough analysis you can strive for. Alright, let's move on to a a different question. We're going to look at question 10 from the same section And once again, the question stem, which one of the following most accurately expresses the main conclusion of the argument, the two key words being main conclusion. That's how you know it's a MPMC question. This question really steps up the difficulty quite a bit from the previous one. So it's, um, you know, while it is true that main point, main conclusion questions are the foundational questions on LR, it doesn't mean they're always easy. There are definitely harder ones. In general they tend to be easier okay but that's in general all right so here uh, there is no explicit author identified it's not like the previous one they say economist so um, here's just some author speaking to us and again I'll just read the stimulus okay I'll read the stimulus and you try to figure out what the main conclusion is based on intuition and then we'll apply our uh, slower deliberative intentional technique of uh, taking a, a statement hypothesizing that it's a main conclusion, and asking, well, why? Why should I believe this claim? Can I find support? Can I find reasons for believing this claim in the rest of the stimulus? If the answer is yes, then that hypothesis is borne out. In other words, the claim hypothesized as the main conclusion is the main conclusion. If it's not borne out, then we need to cast about for a new hypothesis. Maybe hypothesize this other sentence as the main conclusion. See if we can find supporting claims for it in the stimulus. Okay, so uh, I'll just I'll read it. Double-blind techniques should be used whenever possible in scientific experiments. They help prevent the misinterpretations that often arise due to expectations and opinions that scientists already hold. And clearly, scientists should be extremely diligent in trying to avoid such misinterpretations. It is harder, right, to figure out what the conclusion is? So building on what we learned from the first question, This cookie-cutter idea of condensed information, it's happening again here. They use conjunctions to condense information, cats like to play and eat. Right there, I'm using a shared subject, cats, with two separate predicates. Cats like to play, full stop, one sentence. New sentence, cats like to eat. But you know, why not just condense that into cats like to play and eat. Knowing that play and eat are two predicates that share the subject cats. In a simple sentence like that, I mean, there's just no question about confusion. But when the subject gets heavily modified and the predicates get heavily modified, it does take some conscious effort to tease out the original structure. Okay, so we saw that happening in uh, the stimulus from question one. We see it happening again here because it's, you know, it happens everywhere on LSAT. Another way they do this is by using referential phrases. Domesticated cats who are overweight and like to eat all day make great companions for the elderly. Those cats also don't get along with dogs. See, in my second sentence, instead of repeating that heavily modified subject of, I don't even remember what I said, something about overweight and like to eat or something, whatever those cats, whatever those characteristics of those cats, it's just a space-saving technique. Right? I can just say, those cats, instead of having to write out or say out again all of those descriptors of the cats. But again, just like with the previous technique of a shared subject with multiple predicates, there is a cost for the density of information. The benefit is you save space right, or time in communication. The cost is more opaqueness or lack of clarity. It just takes more mental load to decode what's being said. Okay, so let's do that with this stimulus. Double-blind techniques should be used whenever possible in scientific experiments. Actually, sorry, I have to go on another side. Uh, What they're doing here with the first three words, double-blind techniques, is they're psychologically trying to scare you. You might not know what a double-blind technique is. Okay, of course it's better if you do know because That's your first line of defense against this psychological scare tactic, right? They throw some big science words at you. But even if you don't know, it's okay. Getting this question right does not require you to understand what a double-blind technique is. Okay, so I'm not even going to explain what it is. You can in fact just think of it as x. Instead of double-blind techniques should be used, just think of it as x-technique should be used whenever possible in scientific experiments. And every time you see the word double-blind techniques, you just replace it with x-technique. And everything will turn out just fine. Okay, so generally speaking, the LSAT is pretty good about this. They don't require outside knowledge for you to evaluate the logic of the argument. Now, that's not the same as saying outside knowledge is useless. Okay, that's, that's a, really a very different claim. And in fact, it's not true. Outside knowledge is not useless. Quite the opposite. Outside knowledge is very helpful. But it's not necessary. Okay, so uh, let's do this grammar analysis. Double-blind techniques should be used whenever possible in scientific experiments. They help, so that they here is referring to double-blind techniques, help to prevent the misinterpretations that often arise due to expectations and opinions that scientists already hold. Okay, so that's a lot of information to come back. right? A lot of relationships being revealed. So I know that scientists hold pre-existing expectations and opinions, right? That's just one claim. That I can just extract that claim as a standalone claim out of this second sentence, which runs on for like five lines, right? I just want to extract that. Scientists already hold, before they run any experiments, they already hold pre-existing expectations and opinions. Okay, what about these pre-existing expectations and opinions that scientists already hold? Well, the sentence is telling me that those expectations and opinions can lead to misinterpretations, right? I mean, that's what they mean when they say prevent misinterpretations that often arise due to expectations and opinions that scientists already hold. So you see there, I'm taking a dense piece of text and I'm unpacking it into less dense, more verbose, but also at the same time, clearer. Scientists have pre-existing expectations and opinions. What about those pre-existing expectations and opinions? They lead to misinterpretations. Are those misinterpretations good or are they bad? (laughs) That's kind of a silly question, right? But, you know, the text is like, clearly, scientists should be extremely diligent in trying to avoid such misinterpretations. Okay, so they are bad. Not only are they bad, I'm being given a prescription to avoid those misinterpretations, the ones that arise out of the pre-existing expectations and opinions. Okay, how do I do it? Right? What can I do to avoid those misinterpretations now that I know where they come from? And that, you have to go back to the very beginning of this sentence. They help prevent the misinterpretations. What's the they again? Those double-blind techniques. Oh, okay. So double-blind techniques helped pre- prevent these misinterpretations. So really, that one sentence, is, there are two sentences in this stimulus. The second sentence, the one that runs on for like five lines, fully unpacked shows me that there's a problem, and also gives me a solution to that problem. The problem is misinterpretations. The solution is double-blind techniques help prevent the misinterpretations. So now you see the first sentence makes sense in light of this. That's why double-blind techniques should be used whenever possible in scientific experiments. That's the conclusion. Okay, so we're almost done. We're not quite done yet. You still have to sidestep the... Uh, landmines, the traps that are the four wrong answer choices, and identify the correct answer choice, which may not be so in your face. You know, if, they, if the outside writers want to make a question hard, they're going to hide the right answer choice from you. They're going to paraphrase, you know, as we saw in the previous question, the way to hide, to mask a right answer choice is to use paraphrasing, so it's not verbatim what the stimulus said. Right. Here in the stimulus, double-blind techniques should be used whenever possible in scientific experiments. That's the thing we're trying to paraphrase. Answer choice B says it is advisable for scientists to use double-blind techniques in as high a proportion of their experiments as they can. As high a proportion of their experiments as they can. You are just saying whenever possible. right? And instead of the uh, familiar prescriptive of should... Double-blind techniques should be used. What does B do? B says, it is advisable for scientists to do this. So this is the way in which they hide the correct answer choice so that, you know, there's difficulty in this question. But they are saying the same thing. You know, they, could, they didn't have to say it is advisable. They could have said, it is a good idea for scientists' use. That's, that's fine too. They also didn't have to say, in as high a proportion of their experiments as they can. They could have also said, any time that it's possible to do so. Right, as a stand-in for where, whenever possible. Although I suppose my version will be more obvious. Right? Their version seems to hide it a little better. Okay, But these are the toggles, right? the toggles that the LSAT writers get to turn, dial up the difficulty or dial down the difficulty by making the correct answer choice more or less visible, right? more or less hidden. So next I want to talk about answer choice E, which is a super popular, very attractive answer choice, This question and E says double blind experimental techniques are often an effective way of ensuring scientific objectivity. This is not bad. One way you can mess up scientific objectivity is for scientists to misinterpret based on their pre existing expectations and opinions. So, this is not way off, right? When they say to ensure scientific objectivity, but there are two issues with this answer choice. The first and perhaps now obvious issue is that it just simply is not the statement we're trying to paraphrase the statement we're trying to paraphrase is that whenever you can do something you should do it and e is just saying oh this something is often an effective way of ensuring a certain state of affairs okay well that's nice should i do that something you see that those are just different claims one claim is you should go for a walk whenever possible e's claim is walking is Often an effective way of ensuring good health. Mm, okay, so should I do it? Right. I mean, yeah. If you assume you want good health, you should do it. But, but you see, they, they just are different claims. So that's perhaps a more obvious reason why E is wrong. And especially after having just reviewed the right answer choice, I think you can see that contrast They're close. They're kind of closely related statements, sure. But they're not the same statement. Right. They're not paraphrases of each other. Now, the other thing that's wrong with E is more subtle. And it's that E is not even paraphrasing any part of the argument. You know the thing that E comes closest to paraphrasing is um, the beginning of the second sentence, where uh, quote they help prevent misinterpretations, right? They being double-blind techniques. So double-blind techniques help prevent misinterpretations that often arise due to expectations and opinions, blah blah blah, right? Okay, fine. That is to say, you you help to strike down a category of error, does that mean you therefore are often an effective way of making sure everything's fine? No. How many other categories of errors are there? We have no idea according to the stimulus. So just because you help to prevent one category of error, you don't just get to assume that's the only category of error. If it were true that's the only category of error, then you see, just like the, and here it's a callback to A cookie-cutter concept from question one that of binary opposites versus polar opposites you know if you just assume like if we're in the context of a race an Olympic 100 meter dash well there is either win or lose so if you don't win you lose but here it's not like you know there's only this one type of error and if you strike out this type of error then there are no other errors then this experiment is totally fine we can guarantee scientific objectivity It's rather unreasonable to assume that that's the case. So that's why E is not even paraphrasing the part of the stimulus that it's pretending to paraphrase. And this brings up another cookie-cutter feature of wrong answer choices. The outside writers are very careful to make sure the wrong answers are wrong by engineering multiple points of failure. I think they really overdid it for this answer choice. We can see it's not even paraphrasing the part of the stimulus that it's trying to paraphrase so just like in the previous question where the there a and c where i think a and c were the two answer choices that could be false based on the information in the stimulus e also suffers from that so that's one of the engineered points of failure the other engineer point of failure of course is that even if it did accurately paraphrase the thing it was attempting to paraphrase it's still not the main point that you can see by just asking yourself why. Right? Let's say that your working hypothesis when you were reading the stimulus was that the first part of the second sentence was a the conclusion. They help prevent the misinterpretations that often arise due to expectations and opinions scientists already hold. Right? That is the double blind techniques helped help prevent misinterpretations. And let's say you didn't believe that claim. Why? I don't know you gotta prove to me that double blind techniques help prevent misinterpretations that arise from uh, pre-existing expectations, and opinions. Okay, the argument just goes silent. It doesn't try to answer that question. I mean, you can look at the other stuff. Like, okay, the uh, claim following says scientists should be diligent in avoiding misinterpret. Okay, that doesn't answer the question. It doesn't tell me why double-blind techniques are successful in preventing misinterpretations. All right, so there's only one other claim to appeal to, which is the first claim: double-blind techniques should be used whenever possible. I mean, again, you see how that's that's just science evades the question. The real answer to why double-blind techniques help prevent misinterpretations that arise has to do with what a double-blind technique is. You actually have to just, I mean, maybe you already know this, but if you don't, you just have to Google it. You just Google what double-blind techniques actually are, and then you'll find the answer to why they help prevent misinterpretations. But you see, that's information that exists outside of the stimulus. So that's how you can falsify your hypothesis in the event that you hypothesize that that claim was the conclusion. You know, and that's totally unlike if you formulated a hypothesis that claim 1 was a conclusion. Double-blind techniques should be used whenever possible in scientific experiments. If you hypothesize that's a conclusion, the rest of the claims do answer why we should use double-blind techniques as much as possible. Okay, so let's take a look at the other answer choices A, C, and D. Uh, A also talks about scientists' objectivity. So in that way, it's uh, similar to E. Uh, A is saying that scientists' objectivity may be impeded by interpreting experimental evidence on the basis of expectations and opinions that they already hold. So this is a, you know, it's an okay paraphrasing of something in the stimulus. It's just not the main point. And in that way, this is a cookie-cutter wrong answer choice similar to answer choices we saw in uh, the previous question. I believe it was E and D. Those were the answers that uh, paraphrase the wrong part of the stimulus. I think A is doing that as well. And so you know, this, uh, in this question, answer choice E, the one we just talked about, the incorrect one, also did that, right? or at least attempted to do that. C says scientists sometimes neglect to adequately consider the risk of misinterpreting evidence On the basis of prior expectations opinions this is unclear i don't know if that's true it could be true i guess or it could be false okay so this is information that's not even present in the stimulus again a, a cookie cutter wrong answer choice the stimulus didn't talk about how scientists in fact evaluate risk or fail to evaluate risk neglect risk the stimulus only talked about what scientists should do right they should be diligent okay, I should go for a walk every day. Do I go for a walk every day? It's unclear. You know, I should do it. Yeah, but maybe I do, maybe I don't. And finally, answer choice D reveals a new type of cookie cutter in uh, how outside writers write wrong answer choices. Whenever possible, scientists should refrain from interpreting evidence on the basis of previously formed expectations and convictions. So this is what I like to call A word salad, mishmash answer choice. They just take ideas and phrases and words from different parts of the stimulus and then, like a word salad, toss it together, right? Or mash them together, right? So, this whenever possible idea is right. I mean, that's just verbatim. But what is what should be done whenever possible? Double-blind techniques should be used whenever possible in scientific experiments. It's not the stuff that D is saying you should, whenever possible, do it. D is saying you should refrain from interpreting evidence on the basis of previous form expectations. I mean, but you see, like, that part of answer choice D on its own is also a good paraphrasing of something that appeared in the stimulus. They did, in fact, say the last claim, scientists should be extremely diligent in not misinterpreting. So yeah, they should refrain from interpreting evidence on the basis of previously which is the misinterpretation that could arise from that right but you know so each part component analyzed separately does match some part of the stimulus never mind that they don't actually match the right part of the stimulus as a conclusion but they're not even presented together in the stimulus so you just it's like a frankenstein monster of an answer choice right just stitch these parts together and there you go there's an answer choice so that's something you want to watch out for As well because it's one of um the outside writers favorite crutches it is i think it does have a certain psychological appeal because it is just you know these are all ideas that are familiar you just read about them so yeah why not stitch them together okay and you know the reason why not because it's not the main conclusion okay so already um i I hope you believe me that uh the test is pretty cookie cutter these concepts are repetitive, right? We've only looked at two main point questions, question one and question 10, and already you can see the repetition in grammar analysis, right? And in concepts, in the types of wrong answer choices, the stimulus for this question gives us the conclusion first, a prescriptive conclusion. Something should be done whenever possible in a certain situation. And then the rest of the stimulus explains why, because they help to solve an issue and that issue is something that should be avoided. Okay, and now let's take a look at the third and final main point question in all of the June 2007 prep test. And this one comes from the other LR section, section 3, and it's question 12. And in case you're wondering if three main point, main conclusion questions per prep test is the norm? It's actually a little bit over. On average, over the last 12 most recent prep tests, we've seen 2.1 main point main conclusion questions per prep test. So this is slightly higher, but you know, not that far off. Okay, let's take a look at question 12. Again, the question stems as which one of the following most accurately expresses the conclusion drawn in the argument. Express conclusion that means we're doing a main point main conclusion question i'll just read the stimulus and you can decide for yourself what you think the main point of the argument is novel x and novel y are both semi-autobiographical novels and contain many very similar themes and situations which might lead one to suspect plagiarism on the part of one of the authors however it is more likely that the similarity of themes and situations in the two novels are merely coincidental since both authors are from very similar backgrounds and have led similar lives. Okay, so I think some of you might have spotted parallels to question one. I see at least two big ones. One of them is the use of the turn phrase. Here we have however, in question one, it was but. Just like in question one, where the word, the introduction of the word but, relegated everything before it to context, to background information. Not irrelevant information, for sure, certainly relevant and important information, but contextual information, information you need to understand before you can understand the argument. Here, it's the word however that's performing that same function. Okay, I'm not gonna say every single time you see the word but or however, it's doing that. But I will say, generally, that's what these words are doing. So it's not a bad hypothesis to form that when you see the word however or but, you say to yourself, okay, all that stuff before, that's just contextual information. Here's where the author really wants my attention. So I'm going to get conclusion either immediately or pretty soon thereafter. That's one big parallel. The other parallel has to do with the word for from question one. Remember, we talked about that word for. Um, And its related words, for, since, because, they're all conjunction words that join together conclusions and premises. Okay, And the uh, claims that come immediately after for, since, or because are the premise claims. The conclusion can be dropped after that claim, the premise claim, with a comma, after that premise claim, or it can be dropped before the conjunction word, before for, since, because, with a comma preceding it. So again, these... You know, broad strokes, cookie cutter, repetitions. They're just all over the LSAT. Okay? So in this stimulus, the contextual information is that you have two novels, X and Y. What about them? They're both semi-autobiographical novels. What else about them? They contain many very similar themes and situations. Okay? Once you unpack all this information, you naturally might want to know, well, what's going on here? And this brings up another big cookie-cutter concept on the LSAT, which is the idea, the framework, really. It's a framework because you use it to organize information. Okay, Or you can think of it as a lens, a lens through which to see information, this framework of phenomenon, hypothesis. The phenomenon is the fact that you have these two novels, X and Y, both are semi-autobiographical novels, both contain very similar themes and situations. See, that, that phenomenon might lead one to form a hypothesis, right, which is what the stimulus is saying, which, quote, which might lead one to suspect plagiarism on the part of one of the authors. Yeah, that just might be the hypothesis you might form. It's like, hey, I can explain why X and Y are so similar. It's because the author of Y just ripped off the author of X, or vice versa. You know, maybe it's X that ripped off Y, who knows. I won't go more into detail about phenomenon hypothesis as a framework. Again, just, I don't know. I mean, it'll just be a big random aside. But it is a big topic, and I'm sure I'll talk about it more in other questions. Um, But, you know, obviously, there are lessons for that topic in the core curriculum. Uh, But here, the author just uses that phenomenon hypothesis coupling as contextual information, almost as if to say... Look, the facts are what they are. These two novels are very similar. So yeah, some people might suspect that it's plagiarism on one part of on part of one of the authors. But right now that you have this contextual information, but here's my argument. Listen up. It's more likely that it's just a coincidence. Meaning, here's an alternative hypothesis. Don't impute nefarious motives on one or the other of the authors. Rather consider this Alternate hypothesis, which is that it's just a big coincidence. Okay, author, why should I believe you? I mean, I'm all for giving people a benefit of doubt, but I'm also a deeply cynical person, so I'm I'm actually quite drawn to the plagiarism uh, plagiarism hypothesis. I'm also like, well, yeah, 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 I know. But look, I, I do have reasons for you. Where, quote, since, right? You see, again, just like in question one, where four functioned to give you reasons to believe. A claim here it's the word since right for since because they operate very similarly the author tells me why i should be drawn to her conclusion rather to my own cynical conclusion right the author says look look at these authors both x and y they come from very similar backgrounds and they've led very similar lives so if they were to write autobiograph- semi-autobiographical novels what would you expect even if they didn't know about each other Because they have similar backgrounds, they've led similar lives, and their novels are semi-autobiographical, you'd expect lots of things to overlap. Do you see, that's why it's just a coincidence. Now, is it definitive? Like, am I sure that this author is right? Sorry, I'm using author too many times. Am I sure that this hypothesis about the coincidence is right? No, I'm not. Okay, it's possible that they're right. That it's just a coincidence. It's also possible that one of the authors plagiarized. But you see, this is the kind of analysis you don't have to do for main point and conclusion questions. You don't need to analyze how well the premises support the conclusion. Rather, you just need to figure out what the conclusion is that the premises are attempting to support. And here the conclusion is that it's more likely that this phenomenon of similarity of themes and situations in the two novels, that this phenomenon is explained by mere coincidence. Okay, it's more likely that's the case than plagiarism as the explanation. Okay, so uh, this brings up another cookie-cutter idea that you're going to see all over the LSAT, which is the idea of comparative statements. It's a huge topic. And th- again, there's a whole section in the core curriculum with quizzes and drills and, of course, explanations about how to understand comparative statements. But briefly... What you're doing is you're identifying the two things. You know, how do you pull apart? How do you unpack a comparative statement, which is rather dense in nature, right? Or at least in the way the LSAT presents it to us. What you do is you identify the two things that are being compared, and then you identify the quality or the characteristic on which they're being compared, right? Am I comparing a dog versus another dog? Am I comparing a dog versus a cat? Am I comparing an apple versus an orange, so you identify the objects or things being compared. Right? They don't have to be objects, by the way. And here in this example, they're not objects. They're two hypotheses that we're comparing. Right? The hypothesis of being merely coincidental as the explanation for the phenomenon versus the other more cynical hypothesis of plagiarism as the explanation for the very same phenomenon. Right? So what are the two things we're comparing? The next question is, what are you comparing them on? Are dogs bigger than cats? Do dogs make better house pets than cats? Which one is more likely to murder you in your sleep? You can compare them on anything you want. But here, given that we're comparing one hypothesis versus another hypothesis, the stimulus wants to compare which one is more likely to be true. Because it says, quote, It is more likely that. I mean really the conclusion didn't have to say that it could have compared you know you can compare the two hypotheses. which one is more elegant right which one's more parsimonious which one is likely to persuade a crowd which one is sillier right? which one is, has has fewer words in it again you can compare them anything you want right but it's important to identify what the quality of comparison is and here it's likelihood to be true okay so that's step one step two the final step in analyzing a comparative statement is to declare a winner Right, winner meaning which one wins on that comparative quality. right? And here, the winner is, according to the stimulus, the conclusion, the winner is that the coincidental hypothesis wins on the quality of more likely to be true versus the cynical hypothesis. Okay, so once you got that down, you can look at the answer choices. And the very same technique, broadly speaking, that we encountered in question 10 previously and question 1 previously to that, is present again in the correct answer choice which is D here, and that is they're trying to hide the correct answer choice. They don't repeat verbatim that conclusion. They restate it. It's like if I told you cats are more likely to be psychopaths than dogs. The correct answer choice could say something like dogs are less likely to be psychopaths than cats. That is saying exactly the same thing. Even though I use dogs and less. In the second iteration versus cats and more in the first iteration i mean i hope you see that right it is like if i'm taller than you that's one way of saying it another way is saying you're shorter than me i've said the same thing twice using different words so here how can we do that you know before i read answer choice d try to anticipate again the original statement is that it's more likely that the coincidental hypothesis is true Compared to the cynical hypothesis. So you can just say that it's less likely that the cynical hypothesis is true compared to the coincidental hypothesis. And that's by and large what D says. It is, quote, it is less likely that one of the authors of novel X or novel Y is guilty of plagiarism than that the similarity of themes and situations in the two novels is merely coincidental. Okay, so D exhibits two types of cookie cutters one very broad just a way to kind of obfuscate the correct answer choice hide it cover it make it harder to see by using different words and two a more narrow version of a cookie cutter which is to restate a comparative but not change its meaning cats are better than dogs dogs are worse than cats e is a very attractive answer choice It says, if the authors of novel X and novel Y are from very similar backgrounds and have led similar lives, suspicions that either of the authors plagiarized are very likely to be unwarranted. Okay, so you can sense why this is expressing the similar sentiment to what the conclusion expresses, right? but it's not right. Why isn't it right? there must be something different about what e is actually saying versus what d is saying and yeah there is there's actually quite a lot that's different okay so I th- again i think you know having done this comparative analysis you realize what uh, the conclusion actually is one hypothesis coincidental versus the other one plagiarism which one's more likely to be true coincidental okay e is not claiming that E is not saying compare the plagiarism hypothesis to some other hypothesis and say that that one's less likely to be true no he is just simply saying that the plagiarism hypothesis is not even a warranted hypothesis, right? That the suspicion was suspicion that either of the authors plagiarize. In other words, the plagiarism hypothesis, what about the plagiarism hypothesis, is very likely to be unwarranted. Now, hold on a second. That is not what our argument claimed. It didn't claim that it's unwarranted to draw that hypothesis, to formulate that hypothesis rather. And in fact, you know, the author in the context even concedes, you know, the author, quote, which might lead one to suspect plagiarism on part of the authors. That's not a claim about whether it's warranted or unwarranted to formulate that hypothesis. The author just says, yeah, you know, some people might suspect plagiarism. But I'm just here to tell you that the more likely explanation is coincidence. I'm not here to denigrate the plagiarism hypothesis beyond that beyond merely saying there's this better one over here, right? Is this one warranted or unwarranted? Should I not have drawn this hypothesis to begin with? The author's silent, right? The argument is silent. doesn't say anything about that. But E takes it further. E says, well, you never should have formulated that, you know, plagiarism, suspicion, hypothesis to begin with. Okay, so this is tough. E is tough. It's a attractive answer choice, and it's a tough answer choice to get rid of because precisely because it's just, you know, what are they doing? The outside writers are using subtleties in language to express different gradients of certainty right again to sum up the conclusion is taking one hypothesis comparing it to another hypothesis and saying that the second hypothesis is more likely to be true answer choice e is taking that first hypothesis which we know according to our conclusion is less likely to be true compared to the second one but answer choice e says of the first hypothesis oh, that's just an unwarranted, very likely to be unwarranted hypothesis. You shouldn't have even formulated it. Ah, you know, right? That's not the same thing. Who knows? Maybe the first hypothesis is your second best option, right? It's better than five other hypotheses. And in fact, it is warranted by the information, right? I mean, they are suspiciously similar after all. Okay, so this is harder. You know, like, I suppose I could say something like, oh, E is cookie cutter too. You know, it's cookie cutter in that the outside writers are very subtle in the use of language. But, I mean, that's like generic to the point of of not being helpful. Okay, so let's take a look at the three remaining answers. A, B, and C, A says, Novel X, and Novel Y are both semi-autobiographical novels, and the two novels contain very many similar themes and situations. So A does an excellent job of paraphrasing... Um, verbatim, I think. The first claim in the argument. But we've seen this type of wrong answer before. It's just not paraphrasing the right part of the argument. Yes, it's true. But what are you doing? You're just restating the phenomenon. That's not the conclusion. The conclusion is that one hypothesis is better than another hypothesis in explaining this phenomenon. Okay, so A is wrong, but cookie-cutter wrong. B says the fact that novel X and novel Y are both semi-autobiographical novels and contain many very similar themes and situations might lead one to suspect plagiarism on part of one of the authors. Again, just like A, it does an excellent job of paraphrasing and it just says something a little bit more than A. A contains only the phenomenon, B contains the phenomenon and the uh, hypothesis that some people might. Form the plagiarism hypothesis, but again, it's wrong for the same reason why A is wrong, which is that it's not paraphrasing the correct part of the argument. And lastly, C says the author of novel X and the author of novel Y are from very similar backgrounds and have led very similar lives. Yes, also true, just like A and B. Excellent job paraphrasing the argument, but it's just not the conclusion, is it? C is paraphrasing the premise. You know, the premise is this additional phenomenon. You know, we didn't know this until we read the last line, right? Quote, since both authors are from very similar backgrounds and have led similar lives. Oh, okay, so that's new information. That's also part of the phenomenon. But given this new information, you see, now I feel like I'm leaning more towards the coincidence, mere coincidence hypothesis, right? So, that, I mean, that's what C is doing. C's just paraphrasing that premise. Okay, so that's a wrap for the main point, main conclusion questions on the June 2007 prep test. So takeaways. Well, first, I hope you take away from this a well-founded belief, a solid belief on good evidence that the LSAT is highly repetitive. Okay, again, you know, I really didn't cherry-pick these questions. These are just the three questions from the only freely available LSAT are the three main point/main conclusion questions, and even within this narrow set of questions, you see how repetitive things are, right? So I really want you to take that, like, have that belief because that's going to be the core principle around which you structure your studying for logical reasoning. You know, your ability to improve on logical reasoning. To get the correct answer choices right, to eliminate the wrong ones, to speed up in doing both tasks, it revolves around your ability to identify cookie cutter structures. I've seen this before, I've seen this trap before, I've seen this way you're trying to hide the right answer choice, but it's not gonna work. You know, I see right through it. You know, and that revolves around all of these little different cookie cutters of uh, phenomenon hypothesis, comparative statements condensing information by using sharing, rather, one subject with multiple predicates, condensing information by using referential phrasing. These are, of course, cookie-cutters that are not limited to main point and conclusion questions, but uh, the ones that are limited to main point and conclusion questions, we've seen a lot of wrong answer choices correctly paraphrase the argument, but just not the right part of the argument. Right? We've seen how the stimulus is set up such that the opening lines give us not the author's main argument, but rather just the context information. You know, the contextual information may itself be an argument upon which the author layers her argument. You know, and that actually is not limited to just main point and conclusion. You're going to see that in other question types as well. Okay, so that's the one big takeaway, I suppose, condensed into... um, just the idea that the outside is repetitive. The second takeaway is this very thorough analytical approach to reviewing logical reasoning questions. There truly just is a lot to uncover, you know? So I don't think there is a substitute for just time. You need to put the time in to do this kind of analysis. And you also need to be patient. Be patient with yourself. Give yourself the time to not only do this work, but also for this work to take root and become habitual, so that when you read a dense sentence in English, almost like unconsciously, you're unpacking it to arrive at that clear understanding of the meaning. That is a skill, you know, and like all skills, there's no substitute for the mere passage of time and repetition and habituation for you to get better and better at it. Okay, so that's it for today's episode. I hope you found this helpful. If you have any questions or suggestions, please send them to podcast at sevensage.com. We do check and read. I personally read every email we get at that address. And finally, if you haven't done so already, please subscribe, and leave a review on iTunes or Google Play or wherever you get your podcasts. It truly is the best way for you to communicate to me that this is something worthwhile, that it's something that we should keep doing. So thank you very much, and I'll see you next time.